everyone. I'm Artemis. And I'm Rajni. And we are STEM Women in Kidlet. I'm an entomology technician and the author of Do Jellyfish Like Peanut Butter? Amazing Sea Creature Facts and The Grumpy Pirate. I'm a doctor and the author of the middle grade novels Midsummer's Mayhem, Red, White, and Whole, Much Ado About Baseball, and the picture books Seven Golden Rings, Bracelets for Bina's Brothers, and more. Hi, everyone. Today at STEM Women in Kidlet, we're here with Patricia Valdez. Patricia got her PhD in molecular and cell biology with a specialization in T-cell immunity and then went on to become an extramural research integrity officer at the National Institutes of Health. If that wasn't enough, she's also the kidlit author of the book, Joan Proctor, Dragon Doctor, The Woman Who Loved Reptiles. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Artis, how you doing? Good, how are you? I'm good. Welcome, Patricia, we're so excited (laughs) to have you here. Hi, I'm excited to see you guys again. So it's been a while, but I'm so so glad to be here with you. Talk about STEM and books. Oh yeah, so I guess the obvious question is, what made you get interested in T-cell immunity? Oh wow, that's a good question. So (laughs) I'm gonna tell you about my science. yeah, so so you know, I, I so my background. So I have a bachelor's in microbiology, and but as you know, I, that was my undergrad, and so I actually worked in plants at that point. I was working at, in a plant virology lab, and then when I went to grad school, um, I decided I wanted to start working on more disease. Um, I, you know, I was choosing between to continue with the plants, um, but then I figured I should probably you know. Go, start working with, you know, larger animal, large animals, I guess, not large animals, mice, mice are actually very tiny animals. But, <laughs> um, um, so I, I made the transfer at that point. Um, and the lab that I joined was, it's a T-cell, it was a T-cell, it was a T-cell development lab. So it was still, you know, it was, it was kind of getting into immunology, but then also having some general like developmental questions, like developmental biology questions, like how does a you know, CD4 T-cell develop? And, um, you know, so I thought that was a good compromise because, you know, when you think about immunology, when you start reading about immunology, you see there's so many acronyms and it's just so complicated. <laughs> and, you know, the immune system is just some, it's, it's like this on this little trigger, right? You, you don't want to overactivate it. You don't want to underactivate it. And it's interacts with so many other systems and it, it gets very complicated. Um, so I wanted to ease myself into, into immunology. <laughs> And that's how I ended up in, in T-cell immunology. So then I, I did a postdoc. Um, I, I continued working. You know, I worked at Genentech, a company where we we did like um, T-cell, again, cytokine analysis, um, looking at, you know, at, this time I was using looking at more diseases. So like, you know, what were we doing? Um, all kinds of diseases. We, we were doing lupus. We were doing um, um, like um, inflammatory bowel disease. Crohn's disease, those kinds of things. So, yeah, and then I continued my immunology T cell work at, at at the NIH. So I joined the NIH, um, the National Institutes of Health. Um, gosh, it was in like 2009 as a staff scientist there, and I was working in the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, which is the which is the NIH Institute that Dr. Fauci leads. So that was very yes. exciting. <laughs> I, 
I had one one minor interaction with Dr. Fauci. <laughs> my whole time, he walked through the lab once. <laughs> That's my claim to fame. <laughs> but, He's a pretty um, big celebrity these days, though. So, yeah, yeah, he really is. He's our hero. Yay! Um, but he's great, and. Yeah, so I worked there for about, you know, four years, and then I wanted to make the transition to research integrity. And I get, sorry, I'm just getting ahead of myself, but yeah, so I, that's how I got into T-cell immunology. I can continue on if you want. <laughs> well, I mean, we're a science podcast, right? Yeah, so you can hey, talk about it, it all you like with all the nitty-gritty. So, all right, because now we get into like the really like, I don't know, I this stuff just really gets me, you know, so this is. So, you know, when I was a staff scientist, I was realizing that, you know, not everyone is trained the same, um, you know, around that time, it was like 2011, 2012, um, there were a lot of, you know, websites that were popping up that were showing all these instances of research misconduct. So scientists, you know, faking their data and publishing it. And it was, of course, terrible because, first of all, you're wasting, you know, federal funds if you're funded by the NIH, taxpayer dollars. And also, when people try to expand upon your work, you know, they they can't because you, they falsify the data, right? And so, you know, there was a lot of people out there that were trying to understand, like, why people did this. Um, and there was a lot of whistleblowers coming out as well. Um, and one of the journals that I ended up working for, Journal of Biological Chemistry, um, had a ton of allegations of scientists, you know, just, you know, a lot of this has to do with Western blots, which are these gels that people run, um, they run their proteins on it, and they'll blot it with certain antibodies to try and detect, you know, specific proteins and to see what's there. Um, and so what they'll do is, you know, they were splicing different Western blots together, or flipping a band, or maybe like enhancing it, making it bigger, to look like maybe expression was increased, that kind of thing. So um, th those were some of the issues. So uh, you'd also see like, cell images where people just like duplicated image of cells and put it in another panel and then called it a different experiment, which is not good either. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. this was fascinating to wow. me at this point. <laughs> and so I decided to go to, to JBC to kind of work on this because they had just a load of um, allegations that they needed help with. So I was like, okay. Um, so I learned how to do image analysis, you know, in Photoshop and you know, working with tools from oh my the office of goodness. research. I know. This is, like, right, this is not like what you think of when you're like, I am a scientist and I'm doing image analysis on Photoshop. That's so cool. I know. It's so crazy. It's so crazy. Um, yeah. And, you know, the thing is, you know, sometimes these are honest errors. And sometimes you have, to, you have to really understand like what you're looking at, you know, to really kind of judge whether or not, you know, there's a problem, right? And so I think it helps to have that science background in that case. Um, and and so I was there for probably like less than two years, and then an opportunity opened up at the NIH, um, which you know I, I was still around the same the same place. <laughs> so and my husband actually works at the NIH. He's a he has a lab at the National Cancer Institute. Um, so I figured, oh, go work near my husband again. So <laughs> um, so I went back there. There was this opportunity for an extramural research integrity officer. So what is that? Um, so extramural is really it refers to the research that is conducted outside of the NIH, for instance. Okay? So it basically refers outside to the walls, all of, right? That's what it yeah, refers to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, that, that's actually very true. Um, so, so NIH, you know, we're, of course, the largest <laughs> biomedical funding agency in the world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, mm -hmm. the budget is like, gosh, it's just over $40 billion. And, you know, 
10% of that goes to the intramural program, which is, you know, the scientists at the NIH working. And then the others say, you know, it's 85% is money that we go, we send out to, you know, across the country to different institutions and universities um, in the form of grants um, and contracts, but mostly grants. And um, so, yeah, so they were looking for um, someone to come in and um, help with the research integrity re or research misconduct allegations that were coming in. Because again, you know, one of our um, one of our responsibilities is to be important. It, one of our important responsibilities um, is, of course, to be to serve as stewards of federal taxpayer dollars. And so, you know, that's some, one important thing that you know we always have to make sure that we're you know giving out money, but then also making sure that things are being conducted with integrity. Um, and so, you know, I started off there. You know, we would get allegations of research misconduct that came in. You know, NH reviews about, I think it's 80,000 grant applications a year. And so they have panels, several peer reviewers per panel. And so these, these happen like at certain, certain, certain times of the years, certain time of the year. <laughs> and, um, and so during those, those, those reviews, you know, we do get a lot of allegations that come in at that point where reviewers are looking at an application and they see, you know, a problem that maybe an image duplication or even plagiarism. Um, you know, so the federal definition for PHS for the, um, the I guess for, for, for what we do for NIH is, um, you know, the definition of research misconduct is, you know, falsification, fabrication, or plagiarism. So falsification is that you have the data, but you change it. So say you, you removed a point to make the graph go higher, you know, things like that. Um, I know. And then you have, and then you have fabrication where the data never existed. Um, so you just created it out of thin air. <laughs> it seems like almost more work in some ways, like to create oh. data out of like to totally fake data. Yeah. And, do and people like do that a lot. They do. Well, okay. I'll say, you know, we don't or have Or you really come across good... it more than most people would, but. Yeah. And there's been a lot of like studies to try and figure out how, how prevalent this is. And so usually people were, well, before people were thinking it was like point. 0.1% of the of, of um, all research maybe have research, might have research misconduct. Um, but then like there was these surveys conducted, um, several surveys conducted where people were asked like, have you ever conducted, re have you ever um, like falsified or fabricated an, an image or a data, any piece of data? And, and they said, yes. And that was like, I think it was like 1%. And then they asked if like, did you ever, have you, did, did you ever see anybody else falsify data and they're like yes and there's like three to four percent so it's probably a lot larger than we think um but but yeah it's it's a lot <laughs> it's a lot um still but you know and as you know so, and, and as we were, we were moving along so that that I started that disposition about uh, six years ago and over the past couple of years you know there have been other things that have um, come to our attention that you know are harmful to the integrity of the research so one of them is harassment and bullying. Now, you know, we put out several um, policies in the last couple of years around harassment. And, you know, we, you know, we do not, so we require that the NIH research be conducted in an environment that's safe and helpful. Um, and so if there's um, harassment happening or bullying or assault <laughs> or, or racial discrimination, anything like that, you know, we need to be made aware. And so we can take certain actions like removing that person from the grant who's, you know, participating in that harassment. Um, 
So that's one one major thing that we deal with right now. And the other part of it is is foreign interference, and that is where we have scientists that are that have these shadow labs in another country and in the United States, um, where they're getting duplicate funding. Um, they're transferring intellectual property to another country. They're signing these contracts, um, basically stating that you know the intellectual property will stay with another country. And um, state, those contracts also say that they're not allowed to tell anybody about the contract, including their um, their, their their U.S. institution. Um, so that's been in a lot of what I've been dealing with <laughs> the last couple of years. You're um, you're like a spy. You're like <laughs> hunting, or maybe like a spy hunter. This is amazing. I, it's really interesting because, you know, like you were saying, as I was being trained in my PhD, I never thought I would, you know, I, I have calls with the FBI on a regular basis now, and like we're on first name basis now, <laughs> and inspector generals as well. Um, but, Basically, you, know, you need a movie made out of you, not just a podcast <laughs> appearance here, like, right? It's amazing. No, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, it would I, make a good movie. So what I will say, what I will say before we get into, like, uh, let me just stop you for one second. What I will say is that this demonstrates that smart people can do all kinds of things, right? Like you were trained in one thing (laughs) and then you kind of ended up in this position that is like now teaching you about something else. And we haven't even gotten to the writing part yet, but it's like so, (laughs) it's so interesting to me. So I think this is just validating why Artemis and I even came up with this idea for this podcast is that smart people do lots of interesting things. And so I'm fascinated. So now you, you should go on with your yeah. story. Sorry. But you know, it's, it's, it's funny because, you know, in, to, to do like really, I, I think part of it is being stubborn and wanting to do something that interests me, you know, and um, this is something that interests me. So I, you know, I, I just, you know, my position is almost created because, you know, when I started, it was just me, and now I have three people that work for me, and, you know, we have, so our numbers of allegations have, like, quadrupled, <laughs> um, so it's been, uh, been pretty significant, um, but, you know, as far as, you know, when, when you think about publishing as well, that's something where it's, like, I think a lot of it for me is, like, stubbornness, just, like, if I, if I decide I want to do something, it's, like, I have to do it, or else, you know, I just, I just have to do it, you know, <laughs> no matter what. Um, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes at that point to, to do it. Um, but it's funny because I, sometimes I feel like, I guess maybe I'm a hermit or something. I feel like my life isn't that interesting, but I guess when I talk about it, it sounds a little bit more interesting at least, but <laughs> you were the only scientist like spy hunter that we've talked to <laughs> so far. The question is when you got this job, did they have, did mm-hmm. you have to have like a background check on all of your scientific writing ever? Like, did somebody go through, like, your dissertation and stuff and make sure you hadn't falsified anything in that, like, in order God. to get this job? That's so interesting. And I always wonder, like, gosh, what if someone starts coming up with allegations against me, you know? But <laughs> I don't I don't think they looked into that. Um, and luckily, uh, nothing, I don't think I did anything terrible. So. <laughs> well, and I'm sure it's publicly available somewhere, so we could probably all go read it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think it's, you know, part of me is always, like, I've always been, like, kind of, really um I always felt like things had to be fair I, I you know fairness is is what I've always you know I think what drives me is you know to think about people that are you know falsifying data or taking shortcuts um it just gets me you know and wasting money uh, so I feel like you know we need to you know make sure that we get those other people the bad actors out of the system 
um, even when you think about, you know, um, someone, you know, we also have cases where people are like cheating peer review um, to try and, you know, get better scores for their own applications. And so we want to make sure that, you know, we're making, we're funding the best applications, not just being, you know, sideswiped by some people that are trying to influence, you know, the decisions, the funding decisions. So, yeah, it's... It's, it's, and not it's, have people waste time trying to reproduce data that's irre- irreproducible. Yeah, you know, and that exactly thing happened to me when I was a postdoc. So I maybe that's why I got into this. I don't know, but you know, I spent maybe like a year trying to reproduce this paper, and it was just so frustrating. You know, it's your year, it's, it's a year of your life and your career, and you know, a couple of years later when I was at NIH, um, I was, when I was a staff scientist, I saw that the paper, that paper that I was trying to reproduce got retracted. <laughs> I can't remember if it was because research misconduct or it was an honest error. I don't know, but you know, it, it was just very frustrating experience, I have to say, but you know. And happen. I also <laughs> think that it's so important that there, there's someone like you who is safeguarding our tax dollars going into research. Um, because it's important that public there's public funding of research, right? Because we can't have it yeah. all be people who have a stake in the research being positive, right? Um, right. So I, I mean, I really appreciate what you're doing. This is amazing. Spy yeah. Hunter. I think that's what we're yeah. going to have to title this episode, Artemis. What do you think? You know, my kids <laughs> call me, they call me science cop sometimes, but I don't know about that. Yes. <laughs> I think um, Spy Hunter is, is like a little bit more sexy. But yeah. <laughs> Science Spy Hunter. How about that? Now you're getting like James Bondish because it would be yes. like the sexy science spy hunter. But not you that type but, of bondish. Bondish, not bondage. <laughs> Sorry. Uh-oh, we're venturing into non-kidlet territory know, now. Man. <laughs> Maybe we got to the kidlet yet. But I actually now I want to I want to go back mm. and I want to find out why you decided to major in molecular biology back in college when you're like 18 or whatever. Like what oh, made you wow. want to go into all this and begin with? Well, that's really interesting. So so my mom is a nurse. So she retired. She was a nurse. Um and so she she was always pushing me towards the sciences. Um, not she was pushing me, but I always like gravitated towards the sciences for some reason. Um, it's funny because, you know, in, in, in high school, I was, I was, I was kind of a nerd (laughs) and I was in the academic decathlon team and, you know, I was, I was, my specialty was science and we, we actually are, my team actually went to the state competition in Texas, which was like huge. So we're in Houston it was very cool. Um, and you know, so we, we have to compete in all the subjects. So we have to do, you know, the oral presentation, we have to do physics and math and English writing um, and the science quizzes. And then their super quiz was on like Native Americans and um, what was it? I think it was like on 1920s culture. But anyway, um, I digress. <laughs> so the point is, you know, I, I, I did really badly on the science, <laughs> but I got third place <laughs> in writing. <laughs> Oh my God. And it was like, I feel like that was the sign of my life. And it was trying to tell me, you should go into writing. But no, I didn't. <laughs> I, I stuck with the science. Again, it's that stubborn part of me where it's like, okay, I say I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to stick with it. Um, and then, you know, when I got to college, you know, microbiology, it was just always so 
fascinating to me when you think about viruses and disease and bacteria. Um, so that's just kind of what drew me towards that. Um, but that's how I ended up in the sciences. And then, you know, it's funny because like decades later, here I am. I'm like, oh, I should have been a writer, maybe. <laughs> but, you know. You still can I, be. It's not too late. I know. Hey, hey, well, I'm you are writer. a writer yeah, already. Yeah. so <laughs> That's right. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> so follow your dreams. Um, You're listening to STEM Women in Kid Lit with Artemis Rarig and Rajni Laraka. We're here talking today with molecular biologist and kidlet author, Patricia Valdez. So why did you suddenly decide to write a kid's book? Yeah, you know, so going back to the harassment part of my job right now is, you know, we know that harassment is a huge problem in sciences when you think about um, you know, the, the pipeline. So you see a lot of girls in elementary school and middle school and high school that are very much interested in sciences and even in grad school. But you see the pipeline, as you, you guys have all seen, I'm, I'm sure the pipeline starts to dry out, right? Mm-hmm. Like once you get past postdoc, um, you know, there, there aren't as many you know professors that are women or women that hold chair positions. Um, and, you know, for me, I didn't have that very many idols kind of you know people will look up to as far as my science heroes that were women um much less like Latino women you know (laughs) that was was absent um but you know to me you know this is a really important thing is to really you know help you know women succeed and I feel like one of the ways that we can do that is to to give young girls these role models um for you know people that they can look up to people that actually did um, you know make it to the top, <laughs> and you know that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write about women in science. So, so again, you know, there's Joan Proctor, and then the next book I have coming out, I think it's in 2022. I'm not even sure, is is about Gabriela Gonzalez, who is a physicist who works at LSU, and she led the team, the LIGO team, that discovered gravitational waves um, a couple of years ago. So that's very exciting. So I was very excited to to profile and to show a, a picture book story about a but a Latina scientist. Um, but again, so that's another passion of mine is to make sure that, you know, women's voices are heard. Um, and, and so my kids now are teenagers, but as, as when they were young, you know, we read like tons of picture books. You guys all remember that. I'm sure mm-hmm. <laughs> the book after book and you're like, Oh, not this book again. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But one thing that I noticed was like, there weren't any books about women scientists. There were like books about Einstein and um, others but you know there weren't any I didn't see you know you might hear about something about Marie Curie but for me growing up Marie Curie always felt very I mean she was like the first woman to win a Nobel Prize and that's great but it always seemed like very like I don't know sterile and just almost because it was because she ended up dying from her research you know that's just oh you know not exactly it, like a six-year-old topic as much I know. And it's, and, so, and it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a, like, is this what we want to teach young girls that like you can do science, but it might kill you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be, to be, I mean, like, honestly, she's amazing. Right. And a hero, mm-hmm. but like there was so much not known about radioactivity at that time that it's like yeah. terrifying. Right. Yeah. It yeah. really is. Like you don't want to scare people away. <laughs> she would like carry it around in her pocket right and oh my gosh so just yeah so so, you know (laughs) we needed more women (laughs) stories (laughs) 
And um, yeah, and you know, it, it's funny because Joan Proctor just kind of popped up to me because, you know, me, my family would go to the zoo, the National Zoo here in DC and visit the Komodo dragon there named Murphy. Um, he's so cool. <laughs> he's like the coolest. If you ever see a Komodo dragon up close, their eyes, I swear, look like human eyes. Like they're thinking and they're just so, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's kind of, uh, it just draws you in. It's, it's something to, you have to experience. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was, I was separated by a piece of glass. So it wasn't like I was right next to him. But, um, but you know, I, w- I was, you know, fascinated by Komodo dragons. And so I was dr- just reading articles about Komodo dragons. And then at the very end of an article, you know, one paragraph, there's one little sentence that Joan Proctor was the first person to describe Komodo dragons in captivity in the 1920s. I was like, what? <laughs> a woman scientist in the 1920s is like rare enough, right? But a woman scientist working with Komodo dragons? I was like, this woman has got to be interesting. And like, I went, I went looking for something. No one had written anything about her that I could find. Um, and so, you know, I ended up, you know, going to um, newspapers. She, she lived in um, England, so near London and London. And I was, you know, going through all the, these old London newspapers and I found lots of articles. So she was apparently very popular at that time, um, mostly because, you know, she was a woman working in an unusual field. Um, some of the articles would say, girl runs a reptile house. <laughs> I was like, oh, I showed it when I talked to kids. I'm like, is this appropriate? Girl runs a <laughs> So this is a woman. <laughs> not a girl. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, and then, you know, her sister um, worked at Cambridge University, and she left a lot of material there at Cambridge when she passed away. So it was just, you know, Joan Proctor and her, and her sister, Chris. And um, they didn't have any family after that. So that's kind of where their, their I guess familial, line, familial, familial line ended. Um, but, you know, they leave, did leave a lot of material there, um, which I was able to access. Luckily, librarians are awesome. So they, the librarian there, um, I guess the archivist actually the, um, was able to copy a lot of the information for me and, and send it over. Um, so it was just great. And, you know, it, I felt like the story, it's like Joan Proctor wanted the story told because it was like the easiest thing I ever wrote. <laughs> it just kind of just flew. It just, I feel like the story just wrote itself um, because it was, she was just an amazing person, an amazing person. And I knew right away that I wanted to integ- integrate the story of the Komodo dragon, um, you know, with her story. because so I felt like they were both kind of um, an- unusual at the time, you know, people were afraid of Komodo dragons right because at the time they had just been discovered and people thought they were these fire breathing dragons you know with like smoke coming out of their nostrils and a forked tongue they do have forked tongues but um, I mean that would have been kind of cool actually but okay (laughs) yeah they don't fly I don't know that'd be kind of scary too (laughs) Um, but you know they were really misunderstood and you know kind of like people were just you know treated them as very unusual which which is exactly the way Joan Proctor was treated I think you know she started her career at the Natural History Museum of London so okay so she yeah so she started her career at the the Natural History Museum in London and um and so she was very fortunate that she met the curator there when she was very young before when she was in her teens she had a little crocodile and she would bring him by and they would talk about, you know, reptile evolution and all that. Wait a minute. Stuff. Wait a minute. She had yep. a crocodile. She had a crocodile. Yep. <laughs> she got it 
for her 16th birthday. She got a crocodile. I know the, the things people did back then, which we That's definitely would not do. Yeah, which kids do, kids do not attempt do not. this now. Exactly. I feel <laughs> almost bad sometimes because now I sometimes I hear parents like, my kid wants a crocodile now. They want a Komodo dragon now. I'm like, oh, just, no, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so, but she had all kinds of, and a lot of different kinds of pets at her house, even when she grew up. So she was, was almost like a, like a, like a zoo at her house. <laughs> like a Dr. Um, Doolittle. Yeah, she was like a Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> nice. And, yeah. And, you know, but the, that curator was like an incredible mentor for her. And that's why I also think like mentor is just so important to have the role model, someone to really look up for you. Um, and, you know, even though it was very unusual for her to be working there, um, you know, he, of course, she was very young at that time, you know, because she couldn't, she couldn't go to college. She had a chronic disease. She had probably, it was probably colitis is what I'm, what, what I've gathered. Mm. Um, but it, no one really, you know, it's not written anywhere. Um, and I think she ended up you know, dying from you know, colon cancer. Um, but, you know, so she couldn't go away to college. So she had to stay in London. And so she luckily she got you know, a job at the museum. And, you know, when the curator retired, he put her in charge. And um, at the time, you know, it was World War One, and so most everybody was gone. Um, but when the men came back, they were not happy, and they did not treat her well. They tried to hire um, a less qualified man to be her supervisor. That sounds familiar to many people today, I'm sure, still, unfortunately. Um, but she was not having it, and so she's like, "Forget you guys, I'm going, I'm going to the London Zoo." <laughs> So she had this great opportunity at the zoo to um, build this reptile house, which is like, you know, she grew up with reptiles and she loved reptiles. And this was just an amazing opportunity for her. And so, you know, she kind of just, you know, said, forget you guys. And, you know, she went after, you know, what she really was passionate about and what she loved. Um, and yeah, she had like a state of the art facility she created there and it's still in use today. So that's another amazing thing. Um, actually, Harry Aww. Potter. Harry Potter was filmed there. So the oh, scene where he oh. goes in to see the, the snake. Um, the snake in the, in the, the, in the very first yeah. movie. That's wow. Joan Proctor's Reptile House. Yeah. Oh, that is that's such so cool. a cool little tidbit. Yeah. I know. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. And so whenever I watch the movie, this is the first one, um, Sorcerer's Stone, I always think, oh my God, it's her Reptile House. <laughs> so exciting. Um, but yeah, wow. and and you know she she was a pioneer as far as like all the clinical things that she came up with and how to treat these animals. And you, know, you can imagine like how varied they are, they are, right? They're like little teeny tiny things and then huge things. And she was just fearless. And yeah, I, w I wish I had known about her when I was younger. Maybe I would have been a herpetologist. Who knows? But um, but you know she's she was fierce and strong and different, which I loved. And that's why I thought you know kids definitely needed to know who she was so yes and the yeah. idea of being a dragon doctor is like so exciting yeah I love that <laughs> yeah dragon I have to ask jo mm -hmm. Joan Proctor had all these weird pets right pet did you ever have any weird pets oh okay well you know I'd love to have dogs right now I have <laughs> I have three cats and I do have a turtle so I have a reptile actually oh, and oh, perfect what's his name nice Theo Theo. Oh. Technically, he's my daughter's turtle, but I probably take care of him just as much as she does. So he's <laughs> kind of mine too, I think. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's it's very 
it's been a really, I mean, gosh, you know, it, I would say like reptiles are not easy pets. Um, you need a lot of equipment, a lot of special lighting, um, humidity. You need, you know, so it's not easy. Um, having a cat is like no problem. They just wander around and use a litter box and you, you feed them. <laughs> but these, you have to make sure the humidity is right, the lighting's right, you know. Because um, you need to help them maintain their temperatures and stuff yeah. like that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is why I have yeah. tarantulas. They're very easy. Do you have a tarantula? Four, yeah. They're <gasps> they're very easy pets. They're, they're what I tell everybody oh. to get for their kids if they want, like, a pet that can be forgotten to be fed for a couple weeks. You know? Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. Wait, so they, what do you feed them? Crickets. So pretty, ah. same, same thing you would feed like reptiles, right? So yeah, are they? Do they have to be alive? The crickets, or they can they yeah, be dead? They're alive. <gasps> so technically, I guess then you end up with pet crickets too. But I saw that that when I can't remember who it was on someone on Twitter, he went viral because I guess he had gotten the crickets for their um, their pet dragon kind of dragon um, bearded uh, dragon. The bearded dragon, like, and I don't think bearded dragon. Yeah, the bearded dragon. Yeah, so he he had um yeah, so he had a bearded dragon. His daughter had a bearded dragon, and so he he ordered this box of crickets, and not no, I think it, maybe his wife ordered it, not knowing what it was. He opened it up, and there were crickets like all over the house for like weeks and weeks and weeks, and it was just uh, that's why I don't want to deal with crickets. <laughs> so so yeah. I, I have to sh- I have to share a childhood experience with you because this is directly mm-hmm. relevant to what we were talking about. Okay, so when I was in third grade in science class, we did this kind of like population experiment where we grew pea plants from peas. Then we put aphids on the pea plant and the aphid population kind of burgeoned and like the pea plants were kind of not so happy. Then we put crickets in with the aphids and we looked at like what the cricket population did with compared with the aphids. Then, this was sad, but also really cool. We got chameleons. (gasps) And we put them in with the crickets. It was amazing. This was in third grade. I guess. It was amazing. And the chameleons were so cool because we were like, oh, can they be any color? And then we're like, no, they can actually just be brown or green. And we put like like those brown. Plural chameleons? Like yes, not just like, like one chameleon. Each like group of us had what? a chameleon. Yeah, I don't oh know. I don't know how they do this? It was fast, and we would put like the crumpled wow. up brown institutional paper towel in there, and the chameleon would go sit on it and turn brown. It was <laughs> wow. And then we graphed the populations of all these different things. Oh my god, you went to like a great school because that is amazing. That's basically um, like what I did in graduate school. Well, not with community. Right? That, that, that was public school in Louisville, Kentucky. That was the advanced really? program. So we like we had to test into it, wow. but it was public school in third grade. It was inc- I will never forget that. I'm I'm much older wow. than third grade That's right now. Amazing. <laughs> It was incredible. It was really now, incredible. What about in high school? Did you have any like science project in school that you ever like came to that level, ever matched that crazy oh. coolness? <laughs> school biology, like, you know, we did dissections and like, you know, that kind of, and like, I mean, I hate to say this, but I should just say it. Like we did dissections of frogs that were technically still alive. Like they pipped them. And so I was like, yeah. We watched our teacher do that. We were like, what? And he's like, no, they don't feel anything. And we were like, okay. And How like, do you know that? Like, Did you ask him? 
no. It was, it was awful. It was, it was kind of terrifying. But yeah. That's traumatizing. Yeah, so that was, yeah, it was a little bit terrifying. Yeah, it was it was bad. But um, it made me, it made me, in, you know, like when I was in medical school, then it made me draw the line at what kind of stuff I would do. So, yeah. See, yeah, I don't think I could ever, good. that, I don't know if I could do that, you know, and it, for me, it's like blood just freaks me out. And, you know, it's funny. So when I was at NIAD, um, I was in the laboratory of clinical infectious disease. And most of the people that I worked with were MDs. And so they were working on um, really like rare um, rare popular, rare disease population. So these were usually young children. Um, one of them was like, you know, stat three mutation. I can't remember like what exactly, you know, it's called the, the, the disease called, <laughs> I know they had a stat three mutation. See, I'm, I'm so terrible. I'm just thinking about the genes. Um, but you know, I would get, you know, blood from the patients. Um, and, and I, I can, I, I could process them and run them through the fax machine to, to see like what kind of cells are there. Um, but then like when the scientists, when the, when the, the, the MD would, would ask me if, if I wanted to go and see the patient, I, I just, I could never do that. I don't know why mm. I can't, like, it was really hard for me to connect that. It, it feels like you're, it was like the burden is so, so much to think when you really connect it with a real person. Um, it's just, uh, I, I think I would be so stressed out, like just having that person's face in my mind the whole time, you know? So I, I do, I, I you know, I have to say, I do definitely like appreciate what you do. And I'm just, I, I wish, you know, you know, I could do that, but don't like it. Um, but yeah. But you're, but you're like the spy science spy. Picture, <laughs> so like, I don't think I could do that. So there you go. So <laughs> there you go. We're doing what we <laughs> we're, doing what we're meant to do. Yeah, we are. And then, you know, what I do. Mm-hmm. Good. I do think that it's wonderful for kids to read about women scientists, especially ones who are way ahead of their time, like Joan Proctor. When I was a child and I knew I wanted to go into medicine, I literally said to my parents, and I do not, I'm like not kidding you. I said, I'm going to grow up, turn into a boy and become a doctor because that was, those were the only role models I saw. Oh my God. So how would I, and this was not like a need for me to actually turn into a boy, but it was like, well, I was like, if I want to go into medicine, that's what I have to do. Right. Wow. So boys and girls need books like yours of, of female scientists who went and did stuff way ahead of their time. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yay. That's, that's amazing. Um, Wow. That's just, and just to think about you know how many girls thought that way at the time and hopefully they don't think that way anymore I don't know but Mm -hmm. uh, we definitely I feel like we still don't have enough of these books but we'll get there hopefully yeah and it's really cool it's it's well and it's also I mean like the 1920s that's like a completely different era so for her to be doing that in the 1920s is so remarkable you know when when I wrote the book I was like obsessed with Downton Abbey. Do you guys ever watch that? Yes. <laughs> the clothes. <laughs> oh my gosh, Lady Mary. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was completely obsessed with Downton Abbey. And, um, you know, I feel like because this is all take all of like her life was taking place in the, around the same time, you know, there was like the World War One and all that. And, you know, as I was writing the book, I felt like, you know, I was writing in the voice of Lady Mary. <laughs> Telling the story. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and I was just, you know, I was so crazy for that show at the time. Um, so it was, it was a very good, 
good connection <laughs> for me at least. <laughs> it put me right there. <laughs> when you're thinking of sources of inspiration for books, even like after you're writing the book and then. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so what did everybody who, who also works in your spy hunting career think of the fact that you wrote a picture book? Oh my gosh. I was like so worried about people like if they would say, Oh my God, what is she doing? Doesn't she like do work? You know? <laughs> but <laughs> but my boss, who's like, you know, he's up there, he's like the deputy director for external research, you know, he went he loved it. He took it to meetings and he would like read it to people at these meetings, at these like, meetings, these big meetings oh. with like government officials and he, and then, um, like at, at our staff meeting, he was like reading the the publisher's weekly review. <laughs> oh, I love it! And then people would come by to get it signed, not during office hours, of course, during the free time. So <laughs> they would sign. I would get the book signed. Um, and then um, there's this publication called the NIH Record. Um, it's it, I, I don't think it's for staff only, but it's the NIH newsletter um, for like this is what's going on at NIH those last you know, I think it's, it's a monthly, I believe. Maybe it's every other week. And so they, there, so the, there was a person that came and interviewed me for this NIH reporter as, um, you know, you know, being a, a, an author of this book uh, and, and also being, you know, working at the NIH. It's funny because I ended up on the, the front page. My picture was right next to my boss who was like shown at a like congressional hearing <laughs> talking about foreign interference. <laughs> and here I am with my book. <laughs> Oh, that's great. And it's <laughs> showing funny. that Kidlet really is that important and it should be up there too. So. It should yeah, be, definitely. Because, because people don't realize how, like, it's not easy to write a picture book. Mm-mm. Like, it really it's, it's not. not. No. It's, it's like a talent that, not talent, I guess, I don't know, it's something that you have to hone, definitely. It's like to mm-hmm. be succinct, I think. Um, and that's something that I find that I, I, I do in my work as well when I'm summarizing these reports that we get from institutions, you know, I have to like boil it down to like, you know, four bullets <laughs> to give it, you know, to, 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 you know, really. And that's basically almost like what a picture book is, right? <laughs> Especially with nonfiction, if I'm looking at other biography, writing a biography, yeah. um, I have to like boil things down. Um, of course, there's a lot more because you have to make it a story and it has to, you know, have your ups and downs and, you know, <laughs> all those exciting elements as well. But I really think learning how to write scientific papers really is great training for writing picture books because it's all about taking like, oh, you ran 2000 gels on something and you have to mm-hmm. boil that down to like a data point. Right? It's so true. And you, you have to make it a, a compelling story because, yes. you know, that's right. You have to like start off with your beautiful introduction and, you know, it has to really be a compelling story. And it's about telling a story. Um, you know, it's funny because it seems like you know, as the years or decades have progressed, you know, people are expected to tell more complete stories in their science papers, um, which, you know, is good for science writing, I guess. <laughs> but sometimes it, it makes it more difficult, I think, to publish, of course. But um, but it's really interesting. You know, I've always thought the same thing, that, you know, writing science papers was good tra- <laughs> training for writing picture books. I have to agree with that. Yeah, and, yeah. and in medicine case presentations, we are always telling a story. We're, we're oh, yeah. always telling a story, right? Somebody came mm-hmm. in, issue, like these symptoms, and then we thought about all this stuff, and this is what like their exam was like, and then we did all these tests, and then my argument is it's this because, right? It's so it's so yeah. interesting. I mean, 
That's our, really most cool. of our medical notes are incredibly boring, but like when we try and tell stories to other people to like <laughs> talk That's about right. something, we have to be more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember when I was in the laboratory of clinical infectious disease in NIAID, um, you know, again, they would do the patient. Well, what do you call them? I don't know what you call them. Um, when they come in and say, this is the, this is the patient, blah, blah, this age. And yeah, this is the, the case presentation. Yeah. yeah. The case presentation. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But no, it was yeah. always really, really, um, gosh, it was so good because you had to get people in it and like, they like, they want to solve the problem. Right. And so it's just, I love that part of it is like <laughs> solving that puzzle. Right. That's yeah. really fun. That's great. That's great. So are there yeah. any kid um STEM kids books that you would recommend to our listeners? Besides the ones you wrote, of course. <laughs> you know, so I did I you know, I you know, I pulled that I went to my bookshelf right before we got on because I was thinking that I should share some ones that I love. Um Okay, I do have them here with me. So, <laughs> so this one is a black hole is not a hole. Um Ooh. this one, Carolyn Sanami de Chris. Stefano is the author. Um, and, you know, this book, I, I think, you know, I think I got it for one of my kids when they they had to do a report on black holes or, or something. And, you know, everyone just loves black holes, right? You know, my next book is about black hole collisions. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, you know, and I just, I love the title, first of all, and it just has such great information. It's, it's, it's not like a narrative nonfiction, doesn't necessarily like tell a story, but you know, it has a lot of, you know, really fun information and pictures in it. So I, I love this one. That's a good one. Awesome. And then, and then I also love, I love N Nicola Davies books. This one is mm -hmm. Tiny Creatures. And, I, you know, I love this book because, you know, it, it, this is one of those books that shows you like in a drop of water, there's so many, you know, microbes. You know? <laughs> so I, I love like that measurement kind of thing. And you, you think, you, you think about, you know, it helps you think about scale, right? And how small, you know, these bacteria are. So I think that that's a fun book too. And then I did one more book that I pulled out because I, I really liked it. It was this one, the Just Right Searching for the Goldilocks Planet. Nice. Um, Curtis Manley. Um, you know, I love space and I love, I feel like I should have been a physicist. You know, actually I loved, <laughs> I was in the physics Olympics in high school. Thank you very much. <laughs> I I didn't win at my 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 competition was the electromagnet which I did not win because like I think ideally you would have gold um, wire to to make your electric electromagnet mag, magnet work you know I in, in the best way you know but of course I couldn't afford that but of course the the richy rich schools got to win that contest anyway so I was in physical physics and all this I had an awesome physics teacher um, a woman and she was just the best. And, you know, going into, when I started college, I thought maybe I would major in physics, uh, but then I saw like all the boys, right? And I thought, oh my God, maybe I don't belong here. And that, I didn't go for it. And I kind of like, oh, I wish I'd done that, you know? So we need more stories about women physicists and Gabby Gonzalez is coming for you. So <laughs> the next story. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you yeah, so much awesome. for coming and talking to us today, Patricia. And yeah, I'm really pleasure. looking forward to your next book. So, thank you. And it was this really fantastic. great talking to you. Aww, when is so your much. book coming? The next one coming out? I believe it's 2022. I feel like you know I heard the the, the year and I was like that's so far away. I'm not even going to think about it anymore. But I've already seen like the initial sketches. Um, so I don't. It seems like it's going to be sooner. But I, I don't want to. I don't know. I, I'm just going to assume it's 2022. <laughs> the farthest <laughs> away that it could be. I'll be pleasantly surprised if it's sooner. <laughs>
so yep. exciting. Congratulations. Yay. This was so much fun talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, I had a great time talking with you guys too. For more information about Patricia and her books, you can visit her website at patricialdezbooks.com. You can find a link to that in the podcast notes or on our Facebook page, STEM Women in Kidlet. And now it's time for STEM book recommendations. My STEM book recommendation is Leah and Luis, Who Has More? Written by Anna Crespo, illustrated by Giovanna Maderos. This is another picture book in Charles Bridges' storytelling math series, and it is also adorable. It's about twins, Leah and Luis, who both love Brazilian snacks. But Luis is always bragging that he has more, and Leah tries to figure out who really has more. This is a fun way uh, to think about comparisons. My STEM book recommendation is Over and Under the Snow by Kate Mester, with art by Christopher Silas Neal. This book introduces kids to the Subnivian Zone and gets kids to not just notice where animals are, but where they've been or where they may be hiding. Thank you for listening to STEM Women in Kidlet, the podcast about women with degrees or jobs in STEM fields. That's science, technology, engineering, and math, who also happen to write children's books. Happy reading!